Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Philip Lancaster, Dr. Bob Larson, Dr. Dustin Pendle, and Dr. Brian Lubers. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Morning, good morning Brad. Brad. Happy to have you with us and happy to have you listening as well. And as always, if you have questions or comments you want to send us for things or topics you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. That's also a great way to sign up for a newsletter. And if you're not getting the newsletter, you're missing out on some great pictures. We just had a picture contest recently, and I wanted to congratulate our, our winners, Becca Payne, Andrea Vandiver Moore, and Carrie Bryant. Uh, we had some great picture submissions. We're going to be posting those. We'll put some of them out on social media, but we'll also put some in that weekly newsletter. If you haven't had a chance to see it, we really had fun looking through the pictures of cattle from around the country and actually had quite a hard time picking our winners. So we appreciate everybody who submitted one. And as I mentioned, if you have any questions you'd like us to talk about, you can also email us there too. We've got some good topics for today, including we're going to talk about pink eye and maybe a little bit abnormal pink eye talking about growing bulls and what are some of the things that we can do to make sure they're healthy through that process, as well as touching on grazing management plans and carbon credits. Before we get into those, I want to show you guys, and I'm not sure if you have seen this video or not, but there's a video online of a, of a guy tagging a calf and he gets off his horse and the horse is protecting him. The horse is uh, keeping the heifer away as he's trying to tag this calf have you guys seen this video to me this is just amazing and if you're if you're interested in seeing it i just googled horse protects cowboy and it's the first thing that that comes up and this horse basically just stays around him the whole the whole time has anybody seen this yeah that that's pretty cool i never had a horse that that was that good and i certainly had some cows that um would have I could have benefited from somebody watching my back while you're trying to tag a calf because it didn't always go well. That's a, that's a pretty good horse. Uh, you know, I haven't seen the video, but yeah, that's and you a pretty know, good it, horse. It's hard to get a four-wheeler to do that. No, you can't get a four-wheeler to do that. And, and uh, yeah, and I don't think it's just any horse that does that either. Because I asked my wife, I said, do you think our horses, which we don't do anything with, I said, do you think they would do that? <laughs> and she said, uh, no. No. So I assume that you... I mean, do you have to train the horse to do that? I mean, they probably just don't do that naturally, do they? Yeah, I, I, we, we should get a horse trainer on here. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you might be asking the wrong people, Dustin. Because <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing that, yeah. that they can do that. I mean, yeah, you know. that horse kept that heifer away. It's worth a watch. If you haven't seen it, just Google it. It's on YouTube. I Google Horse Protects Cowboy, and, and there it is. There you go. So let's jump in. And, and Brian, I know you have had some phone calls recently. And, and we talked about pink eye earlier in the year. And pink eye, a lot of times we think about with flies, we think about midsummer. But you've had some calls recently that, and, and I want to ask you, are there times it's maybe not just pink eye? Yeah, I, I've, I've had a few calls from veterinarians just in the last couple of weeks. Um, and I would even say, Brad, over the last few years, I've I've noticed an increase in these number of calls, and that's purely anecdotal. You know, there's there's probably lots of calls I that nobody ever makes, and I don't know about. But it seems like we're seeing more cases, and usually usually it starts out with they aren't responding to antibiotics like we think they have in the past, or we think they should be. 
and 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 sometimes maybe even a little bit later in the year although this time of year we talk about pink eye a lot in the heat of summer but this time of year we're still right there right we've got a lot of flies we've got other stuff but you're saying these cases just are non-responsive to our typical treatments for pink eye yeah that that and like i said it's purely anecdotal but that seems to be the pattern that i'm noticing so you know i guess the question is okay well what do you do right um and so what I, what I've been, especially in the cases just in the last few weeks, what I've suggested to people start do, we, we've noticed, or maybe we found um, in the last few years that there are some, there are some other pathogens, other bacteria, other viruses that can cause a, a pink eye like complex. They look like pink eye cases. Uh, and when we do some investigation, uh, we, sometimes we find mycoplasmas. So there are some mycoplasmas associated with pink eye complex. Uh, and in some of these cases, we're finding uh, IBR. So the virus that causes IBR, the respiratory virus causes IBR. So, and, and both of those have, uh, they, they may may not respond to their typical antibiotic therapy. And so that's, I think it fits with what we're hearing from from the field. So a couple couple of points there, and, and that's a bacteria and a virus that are a little bit different than the typical bacteria that we have that causes pink eye. Although, Bob, are, th- are those things contagious, the, the virus and the bacteria that he's describing? Yeah, both of those are actually very contagious, probably more contagious than what we typically think of with the bacteria that causes pink eye. So you could get a, a group, if they're susceptible, where these go through and really cause a pretty, pretty big outbreak. In my experience, and I'd be interested Brian, and if you've had the same experience, a lot of times the, the, the lesion in the eye may not be quite as severe as far as, you know, getting a deep ulcer or something like that in the eye, but boy, they'll get cloudy. They'll be kind of painful. So my guess would be that if it seems to be really contagious, it's moving through the herd very rapidly, the lesions are that the eyes are watery and cloudy, but maybe not progressing quite to that ulcer stage, that that kind of fits some of these other things things. And, and, and you're exactly right. The virus, the IBR virus, isn't going to respond to antibiotics and mycoplasma only responds to some types of antibiotics. Yeah. I, I haven't gotten the feedback on the lesions looking different, but the histories all seem to, they just aren't responding like they typically do. So um, if, if you're in that situation and, and maybe add on a couple of Bob's points, you know, it seems to be more contagious, like it moves faster. You have more animals than you normally would see with typical outbreak. Um, the, the testing, the diagnostic testing that we do is, is different. So um, it might, that might be one of those cases where you chat with your veterinarian, but it, you might, you might expand what you're looking for as far as, as far as the bugs that might be causing these lesions. Well, and it might be worth the other point I would say as a take home Brian is it might actually be worth doing some further evaluation if it doesn't respond to treatment. Cause a lot of times we may not do a lot of diagnostics on a typical pink eye case. You say, well, we've got pink eye and, and we deal with it, but if, and this is true for a lot of diseases, if it doesn't respond to treatment in the way that you think you might want to do some follow-up and, find out maybe it's not exactly what I thought, even though the lesions look similar, the presentation looks similar. Yeah. Agree. If, if it's not behaving like it should be as far as treatment response, that's always a good time to, to dig a little deeper and investigate what else might be contributing to that. 
Excellent. So we've seen some cases, had some calls about that. So keep a lookout for that in your operation. It's also the time of year, too, when we start to think about if we had springborn calves and we're going to save some bulls or we've got somebody that's growing bulls and they're going to grow between weaning and let's say yearling age, guys. Let's think about feeding those bulls because my goal is I want them to grow rapidly enough that by the time they get to pass yearling age, they're going to be ready to pass a BSE or a breeding soundness exam. But there's some caveats there as I start feeding those. Can I just put those bulls on full feed, Philip? Or what, what's my best plan for starting those bulls to grow? Well, I'm, I'm going to let Bob go first here and talk a little about some of the issues that we have with growing those bulls um, and, and how that can affect that BSE exam. Yeah, the, the challenge with these young growing bulls bulls is they they do need to grow fast first of all they're they're a big animal and they they change a lot in weight between weaning and that yearling age when we're going to do their first bsc and get ready for their first breeding season so they're going to grow pretty fast and and it's that they're so much different than growing heifers or maintaining cows in the 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 type of diet they might need and the quality of the forage they might need and therefore i think a lot of times because i really don't want to underfeed them uh, people tend to overfeed them. And sometimes buyers even kind of approve, kind of like the look of a overfinished bull. And so the tendency is to be on the safe side. I don't want to underfeed him. So I might, if I'm going to err, I'm going to overfeed him. Sometimes, sometimes they always, they're, okay, they're going to reward a fleshy bull. <laughs> you bring a thin bull to a bull sale, you're going to go, what's okay. wrong with him? I was kind of trying to be nice there, but yeah, they, they usually come into the sale pretty fleshy. And there's some negatives of that from a, from a breeding soundness exam. A couple of things is really important that the, that the testicles are able to be cooler than the, the core body temperature. And that's the whole if, reason they're outside of the body. That's the whole reason that they're hanging down there. And so if there's fat deposition kind of up in that neck of the scrotum, though it doesn't allow the testicles to be cooler. And you see that as the veterinarian doing a breeding soundness exam, you see some defects in the sperm production and, and, it, and they're not as fertile as if that had not been over fat. The other thing we see is, and, it's, and you see the same thing in some other species too, some large dogs and horses and, and bulls, is lesions in the, and particularly in the knees, but other joints when they're on too um, energy dense of a diet. And, and so then as they're growing, kind of the cartilage and the joints don't form as good as they should if they're on a on a higher plane of nutrition. So we want to kind of grow them pretty rapidly, but really it's, it's, it, we keep talking about the Goldilocks ph phenomena. I want them to grow fast, but not too fast. I want them to be in good body condition, but not too good a body condition. And, and it's, it's a pretty narrow window that I'm actually trying to hit. So, so let me clarify a couple of things, Bob. W one, you're not saying that every bull has enough fat in the scrotum that it's going to damage his his sperm production you're talking about getting to an extreme case yes. or what are you saying um it it depends on the, so let's just say it, there needs to be some fat deposition up in the neck of the scrotum to really cause some problems but for a lot of people maybe they're used to seeing that so they don't see that as um, a problem because that's kind of what they've become accustomed to. So that's another place where a veterinarian coming in and doing a BSE might be first clued in because of kind of some of what he's seeing on the semen evaluation and, and then say, you know, let's look at these bulls and their body condition and maybe we need to change kind of our eyes so that we don't accept such a heavy or a heavy weight, heavy 
conditions for. But, but your other point there is it's not a yes, no situation. It doesn't mean they're going to fail, but it could hamper their fertility, similar to what you're describing on the, and, and the other part of what you described, growing too rapidly, or maybe even, and I'll infer from what you're saying, some subclinical acidosis, or we get some acidosis in those calves. So Philip, I'm going to turn to you. How do we make sure that that we can feed those bulls in, as Bob described it, the Goldilocks manner to get them to grow efficiently without veering into acidosis? Well, from, from, from a growth perspective, we need to think about um, what rate of gain they need to, to gain. I mean, bulls are, they've got you know, more testosterone, they're gaining more muscle. So you can push them harder than you can a steer or a, a, a heifer without getting them over conditioned. But you still can't push them too far. And so we need to think about how fast that is without getting them over-conditioned. And, you know, that depends on the frame size of the bull and, and things like that. But then from the, from the acidosis perspective, you know, we, we talk a little bit about, you know, putting bulls on a feedlot ration is, is not good for them. And they, they fall apart when you move them out to pasture. And so, we, we want to grow them on a, you know, a higher forage diet or a, you know, where we're not pushing them to put, we're not putting so much grain to them, um, but we still got to get them to gain. So how do we do that? Well, one of the things we probably want to do is think about using some of our highest quality forages and, and think about using some of those byproducts that are high energy, but they're low starch. So things like distillers, grains, corn gluten feed, uh, soybean holes, those kinds of things. They've, they've got high energy. They're highly digestible fiber. They've got very little starch. And so we don't run the risk of acidosis in those bulls because they're going to eat a lot and we're trying to push a lot of energy to them. So those are some things to think about is try to, try to get that rate of gain you want, but not over condition and not have subclinical acidosis problems. Absolutely. And I think what you're describing with the manage that diet, formulate the right diet, and you may have to talk to your nutritionist if you need to. And then also, Brian, you've talked about managing those transitions. Yeah. I just, whenever you are changing the feedstuffs, you really need to make that introduction in that well, if, it, if we're in the feedlot, we'd call it step up, right? We need to make that step up slow and over time. So allow that rumen, the bacteria in the rumen to adjust to the new feed a little bit. Um, that'll kind of limit your, your risk of developing acidosis. Which that's the beauty of cattle is they can eat feeds we can't, but the only reason they can is that bacteria in the rumen, but it's not a bacteria. It's lots of different populations that have to have time to shift. So great, great point there, Brian. Welcome to our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist, which this week are our five tips for managing your growing bulls. Number five, incorporate byproducts as part of a total ration. Number four, use high-quality forages to decrease the amount of concentrate feeds needed. Number three, manage feeding transitions slowly. Number two, target appropriate body condition, not too fat and not too thin. And number one, formulate an appropriate ration. Work with a nutritionist if needed. And that's our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist for this week. And 
we talk about grazing cattle and the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef has come out with several sustainability guidelines. And one of them is focused on having a good grazing plan for your operation. Dustin, I know you've had a student that's done a little bit of work in this area. What are, what are your thoughts? So, yeah, we did have a, a master's student, uh, Cassie. She did her master's thesis looking at these grazing management plans. And uh, as you point out, the, uh, the roundtable for sustainable beef, specifically thinking about the cow-calf sector, these grazing management plans, they serve as one of the key metrics for three of the six indicators that, that the roundtable's looking at, uh, specifically water resource, land resource, air and greenhouse gas emissions. And so she did a, a survey uh, across, uh, you're working with NCBA, a survey across the U.S. of cattle producers uh, and, and land managers to just get a better understanding of who has grazing management plans uh, in terms of acres, operations, you know, what kind of detail are in those grazing management plans. And so that's uh, what she she surveyed, like I said, the producers to kind of get a better idea of just where are we at in the U.S. today? What did you find out? Uh, some things, I guess, maybe not super surprising. Uh, so she surveyed both cow-calf and actually stalker. So those kind of two different groups. Uh, you know, age. Age is an important driver in this. And as you might expect, the older an individual is, the less likely they would be to uh, have a written grazing management plan or adopt a grazing management plan. Uh, a couple of other yeah, But things. I would contend some of those things are, it doesn't mean they don't have one. No, no, I mean, no, no. I did not say that. It, it, so, so we actually broke that out into, would you, do you have one mentally or do you have one, you know, not on paper versus do you have a written one? Uh, coefficients still stay the same sign. It's a negative. So as you get older, the likelihood of you having one or adopting one uh, goes down. Uh, succession plans, I guess. I didn't think about this, but those that have a succession plan actually are more likely to have a written grazing or, or even have a grazing management plan for both stocker and your cow-calf operations. Uh, the larger operations, those that graze 5,000 acres or more uh, or the larger herds tend to have a grazing management plan or would likely adopt either one or a written one uh, for both the stalker and the cow-calf operations. So there's just a couple, just a couple of the main findings, I guess, from her master's thesis. Yeah, and Philip, you've talked about the importance of grazing and managing that. What are what are your thoughts relative to these grazing management plans, and specifically, does it have to be complex to be effective? No, because the, the actually the simpler it is, the more likely you are to follow it. Um, I find that's know, true with all my plans. <laughs> if you, <laughs> you know, when you know, I, I want to say a few years ago or several years ago, you know, what's the best man grazing management plan? What's the best rotation grazing plan? And, you know, we had these big complex things with 24 different paddocks or whatever, and you had to rotate, you know, every couple of days or every, even um, every day or things like that. And nobody would adopt them because they're too complex. It's too difficult to manage. And so design something that works for your situation and adopt it. You know, I had a forage agronomist tell me one time, 
divide the pasture in half, put the cows on one side for a few weeks, then move them to the other side for a few weeks, and then back to the other, and there you go. You are using rotational grazing and have a grazing management plan. It so doesn't I think take a whole lot. And that's a great point in that you get most of the gain with the first few steps you take in that direction, right? If you get overly complex, and all of us have done this, right? I'm going to do a new thing, right? January 1, I'll tell you what, the rec center here at K-State is packed. You can't park over there because everybody's going to work out for two hours a day. By February 1, parking's fine. It's no problem at all because we start out too complex or too big and then we back down. I'm guilty of the same thing. So the the other, and I want to switch topics because I've got one more I want to hit on. And we hear this in the news, carbon credits. And when I hear that, I I almost don't really understand what that means or what the implications are. So hopefully you guys can help me sort through a little bit of that. Uh, so what does it mean when they start talking about doing carbon credits in the beef industry? Dustin, again, I know you've had some students there in Ag Econ that have done some research on this. So I think just taking a step back, my understanding, again, I haven't, I haven't done much work in this carbon credit uh, world since, you know, probably last 10, 12 years. But, you know, with the new administration on climate change and this and that, you've got some corporations that are making pledges to reduce uh, their carbon footprint. So Cargill, PepsiCo, Microsoft is examples. And so they're, they're wanting to try to buy carbon credits such that they can offset their emissions. And so you've got the sellers who might be your producers, farmers, ranchers, and you've got the buyers, the McDonald's, the PepsiCo's, the Microsoft's, the Cargill's, right? And then you've got some intermediary, intermediary, right? Kind of a broker that goes in between those two is my understanding. Uh, it's becoming more and more popular, especially in, let's say, Europe, where there are regulations. We don't currently have regulations here in the U.S. That's my understanding. So maybe there isn't quite the demand for it. Uh, but, you know, in Europe, in rec- even as of May of 2021, I think there were producers or people who were uh, sequestering the carbon. We're getting, uh, and they were making pretty, I want to say it's like $68 per metric ton to store. Now, how much is a metric ton? I don't know the answer to that. I know our payments here in the U.S. are much lower currently today, uh, but that's, and most of the, 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 the discussion is around farming practices, right? Switching from a, a conventional till to a no-till, but that's not to say that pasture land, range lands, et cetera, can't be uh, in the discussions as well. Yeah, so most, most of the conversation around crop farming, but all of it <coughs> centers around having good records, right? You're not going to get paid carbon credits unless you can somehow record how your practices influenced a change. Is that what you're saying? So you're probably going to have to have some kind of record keeping, and I'm sure there'll be some kind of audits with soil, you know, soil sampling, et cetera. So there are going to be some costs associated with this, but uh, there, there also would be some, hopefully some benefits as well financially to the producers. But for sure, we've talked about this on many episodes in the past. You need to have records of what you've been doing uh, on your operation. So, Dustin, I have a question, and maybe this is too far into the weeds on this topic. But so right now, corporations are paying farmers and probably some other people, too. They're paying for their carbon credits, right? So what happens if the regulations change where the farms have to show 
a reduction in their carbon. So they need their own carbon credits. Then what happens? They, they no longer have the amount of carbon credits to sell out. So if that was the case, uh, I guess my guess is be just as good as yours, right? Then they wouldn't be selling their own credits. Uh, they wouldn't be right. selling those credits, right? And then it would push back on your large corporations. They would have to figure out a way uh, to find some way to offset their emissions. Yeah, I or think it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch that, kind of watch that market evolve. And as we as we learn more, about that we'll certainly share it with you i'm still i'm still confused dustin so you may you may have to offline help me out and help me understand a little bit better and we certainly appreciate you joining us today and as always if you have topics or questions for us we love getting your your questions you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu